Daniel chapter five, and uh, you know it's best to read the whole chapter, but I think for the sake of like length, um, we're gonna just read chapter uh, verses thirteen to thirty-one, which consists of basically Daniel's interpretation. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered your days, the days of your kingdom, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is a word of the Lord. Uh, before we start, let's, uh, let's bow our heads for a, a word of prayer. God, we thank you just for this time, and we thank you, God, for uh, your word. Anytime you reveal your word, it's uh, not only is it a powerful moment, but it's something that we have to pay attention to, and we want to have ears to hear uh, what the Spirit has to say to us, and uh, when we say us, we mean us, uh, not just individually and personally, but also us collectively. Uh, what do you want from your church? Uh, how do you want us to um, honor you? and lift you up and so we pray god that this would be a fruitful time a powerful time 
and uh, an encouraging time as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, you know, <clears throat> before I start the sermon, I'm, I'm so glad actually that we are, that I get to preach live during Zoom because, you know, I, I, uh, I, I partook in a Zoom wedding yesterday and it was a pre-recorded prayer. And Jen and I were like watching the ceremony and then my pre-recorded prayer come, came up on the screen. And it was just a weird feeling to hear myself on video saying, let us pray, and then praying with myself. So I wonder, you know, I know some churches um, probably pre-record sermons too. And uh, I am glad I do not have to hear myself preach uh, as my family and I worship together. Uh, but we can do this live and you hear me, but I don't really have to hear myself. Anyway, we've been going through the book of Daniel, which is a book that takes place during the circumstances of Jewish exile. And it has been showing us over and over again that God is in control, even when the circumstances of life seem to be out of control. And even when it appears as though evil, powerful kings are in control, God is still the one who is in control. And now I know there's a way to say that to someone who is going through something difficult that might sound... Uh, kind of cold or harsh or emotionally disconnected from pain or grief or suffering, which is why we need the biblical practice of lament. But the sovereignty of God is really what anchors us when we feel as chaotic as the ocean waves in the middle of the storm. It tells us that in the moments where we feel like things are most out of our control, God is in control and that is supposed to be a source of comfort for us. And that's something that the Jewish exiles would have needed to be reminded of as they experienced exile, as they experienced Babylonian captivity. Now today we're going to look at chapter 5, and if you heard the sermon from last week, uh, this, this chapter might feel a little bit like deja vu. Uh, in chapter 5, we have a different king. This is not King Nebuchadnezzar, but now it's a king named Belshazzar, and he also has a problem with pride. Uh, God sends a message, and Daniel interprets that message for this king. But then when you start to get into the, some of the details of the story, you start to realize how different Belshazzar was from Nebuchadnezzar, which is why the story actually has a very different ending than the one with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, since we didn't read the first half of the story, let me give you a little bit of context and tell you what uh, happened in the first uh, half of this passage. King Belshazzar, he has this great feast, this great party, and he invites a thousand of his lords. Now, the party is insignificant to the story except to show that it led to Belshazzar drinking wine at this party. And the suggestion is that his drinking wine led to him giving this command that the vessels or goblets like cups of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem when they sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, that these vessels be brought in so that his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink for them. Now, these are uh, sacred things from uh, the, the temple of God, from the people of Israel. And what he is doing is kind of like this blasphemous and defiant act towards the people of Israel and towards the God of Israel. Now, there's also a little bit of historical context here that highlights uh, kind of the lunacy of what Belshazzar is doing. Now, if this story takes place right before the fall of the Babylonian kingdom, and it takes place during this transition of power, then it means that the Persians were probably already knocking on the door and threatening Babylon. Now, you don't bring down a kingdom overnight, so I don't think Belshazzar uh, would be surprised by anything, but there's usually a series of battles that take place where armies are defeated and city after city is taken over. 
Uh, there's some sources outside of the Bible, and it tells us that Cyrus the Persian uh, defeated a guy named Nabonidus and the Babylonian army shortly after they took the capital. Who is Nabonidus? Well, Nabonidus is supposedly Belshazzar's father. Now, I know this text refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father, but I think it's using father to mean predecessor in the same way that Elisha called Elijah his father. Uh, not necessarily biological father, but he was his uh, father in the sense of he was a predecessor as king. Now, if Nabonidus is alive, that means that he is supposed to be the actual king. So why is Belshazzar the king here? And the reason why Belshazzar is king is because Nabonidus was away. He was absent, I think, for about 10 years, presumably to be with his army. And since he was absent, he left Belshazzar in charge. And therefore, Belshazzar, he would have been very aware of uh, the activity that was taking place around the kingdom. And he probably knew the Persians were coming and getting closer and closer. And therefore, there's probably a sense that his life and his kingdom is uh, in danger. And so what is his response? He throws a party and he invites a thousand people. As we said, at this great feast, he does something really disrespectful to the Jewish people. He takes these sacred instruments from their temple and he uses it to serve drinks at this party. And why, why would he do that? Well, he's probably doing it as a way to show off his power. It's as if he is saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to offend uh, the people of Israel, didn't want to offend their God because he was weak. And so he wouldn't have dared to do what I am doing. But you see, I'm stronger than my predecessor. I don't fear their God because they are the people that we conquered. We are the victorious ones. And therefore, I am going to show you how strong I am by metaphorically spitting in the face of the God of Israel, by uh, defiling uh, the instruments of the temple. Now, I think most of us have probably been witness to people who might act like this. They, they kind of do arrogant, pointless, stupid things in order to, what, flex their muscle. Uh, but these kinds of actions are usually rooted in some kind of deep insecurity in the person. When you feel the need to flex your muscle or to show off, when you feel the need to insult someone and to bring them down, it's really a way to cover up your insecurities. It's a way to make yourself feel better. So why is Belshazzar so insecure? Well, think about it. If the Persians are coming or the Medes are coming, then he is probably going to lose everything he has and he will likely die. Uh, if his security was found in maybe his power or his kingdom or his reputation, all of that is about to crumble. You know, insecurity arises when the object of our faith and trust starts to get pretty shaky. And of course, a lot of us have different insecurities. We are insecure about how we look whether people like us, whether people uh, respect us, whether they respect our work, whether our parents are pleased with us, whether our kids like us, whether we are smart enough, whether we are skinny enough, right? A whole other range of things that we can be insecure about. And those insecurities are a window into what we are actually looking towards for purpose and honor and the sense of I am. The problem is these things will inevitably start to shake. And when they shake, insecurity starts to kick in. Belshazzar, uh, he feels that his kingdom is shaking and he's insecure. He, he's kind of like the boss who maybe gets that bad performance review and knows it's only a matter of time before they get fired. And so in order to deal with their insecurity, uh, this boss decides to pick on someone who has less power and significance. Maybe it's an intern. And this boss lashes out at this poor intern saying to him or her, you're incompetent, you're useless, why are you here? I can replace you anytime I want. 
and everybody is like watching this boss and saying, what is wrong with this person? That's what insecurity can do. Uh, does that happen in real life? I, I don't really know. I just made that up. But I can imagine something like that happening. And that's what Belshazzar is doing here. He's trying to compensate for his insecurity by picking on the insignificant Jewish exiles and reminding everyone how Babylon sacked Jerusalem and destroyed their temple. But you see, by picking on the Jewish exiles, he starts to mess with the God Most High, right? It's like picking on an intern whose parent turns out to be the CEO of the company. You can't do that. You can't blaspheme the God Most High and think it's okay. So after uh, Belshazzar does this act, immediately after, the fingers of a human hand appears and writes on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And Belshazzar sees this. I mean, just picture it in your mind. You see like this human hand appear and writing these words on the wall. Belshazzar sees this and uh, what it says is his color changes, his thoughts alarm him, his limbs give way, and his knees knock together. All of these things describing that Belshazzar is freaked out. And he calls the uh, enchanters, he calls the Chaldeans, he calls the astrologers, and he says, interpret this writing on the wall for me. And all of them are perplexed, and they don't know what it means. Then someone who is called the Queen Mother, who... Uh, whose identity is somewhat vague. It could be Belshazzar's mother, it could be his grandmother, it could be Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who knows. She gives Belshazzar some advice and she tells him, you know, there is a man who helped your father, Nebuchadnezzar, with wisdom and understanding. He has the ability to interpret dreams, to explain riddles, and to solve problems. His name is Daniel. Why don't you call Daniel and he will interpret this writing on the wall for you. And that leads to the portion of the passage that we read today. Daniel, he comes in and the king says to Daniel in verse 13, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Now, identifying Daniel as an exile is pretty deliberate here. It's a way of kind of expressing that he doesn't think very highly of Daniel. Despite his history with the previous king, uh, he's reminding him, he's putting him in his place and he says, you are still just a lowly Jewish exile. And I want to make sure you know that and you understand that. And so again, Daniel finds himself in an unfavorable situation because Nebuchadnezzar is now gone. He lost uh, whatever favor he had with Nebuchadnezzar. doesn't matter anymore. Now there is this new king who doesn't seem to care what Daniel has done in the past. And as is the theme of this book, even though Daniel is no longer in a favorable situation anymore, God is still in control and God will still continue to show favor to Daniel. So the king says to Daniel, if you can read this writing and interpret it for me, I'm going to give you some things. I'll give you purple clothes, the color of royalty. I'll give you a chain of gold. I'll give you this high position as third ruler of the kingdom. And Daniel's response is to say, ah, keep it, right? Keep your gifts and give it to someone else. I'm not interested. And this tells us that he doesn't have the same kind of relationship with this king that he did with Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't seem to care for Belshazzar. And yet he still agrees to interpret this writing. And before he gives him the interpretation, Daniel does something interesting. Uh, he reminds Belshazzar of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, which is uh, the story of what we saw last week in Daniel chapter 4. And he says, God gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And it's like the same phrase we saw from chapter 1 that emphasizes God is the one who is doing the action of giving. God is the one who is ultimately in control. God is the one who gave the kingdom and power to Babylon and specifically to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's reminding him, the God that you just mocked with your little drinking party 
is actually the one who gave your father everything that he had. You know, Nebuchadnezzar thought he did it himself, and God had to come and humble him from his prize. But after Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, he eventually came to the realization that, oh, the Most High God is the one who actually rules all mankind. And as a result of his humility, God allowed him to continue to rule. So he tells that story. Then he directs his words to Belshazzar and says, but you haven't learned the lesson of your father. You haven't humbled yourself in your heart. You have not recognized that you are king and you have a kingdom ultimately because God is the one who gave it to you. Rather, what did you do? You did the exact opposite of what you should have done. You should have praised the God most high for giving you what he's given you. But no, you decided to lift up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You decided to take the vessels of his house and use it uh, for your little party to get drunk on wine. You decided to praise lifeless idols of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And therefore, you have not honored the God who gives you breath and life. And then Daniel finally reads and interprets the writing on the wall. It says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. What does that mean? Mene means numbered. And Daniel says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Tekel means weighed. And Daniel says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, which basically means God has looked at Belshazzar's motives and actions and found him to be unworthy. And finally, Parson, which means divided. And Daniel says that the kingdom divided between the Medes and the Persians. And the writing and its interpretation are words of judgment against Belshazzar. Uh, by the way, um, those phrases should sound somewhat familiar because those are phrases that we use in the English language when we say things like your days are numbered or when we say things like the writings on the wall. Those phrases actually come from the book of Daniel. And even in a non-faith context, people still understand these phrases to mean a day of reckoning is coming, right? Uh, it's a similar meaning. God is going to exercise his justice by bringing judgment upon Belshazzar for his pride, for his blasphemy, by bringing an end to his kingdom. And what the final verse says and how the story ends, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And then you have Darius Samit come in and he takes over. When Daniel says, your days are numbered, I guess Belshazzar didn't have too many numbers left. Uh, and so after Belshazzar is killed, uh, that you have this transition of power, and now Babylon has fallen and a new kingdom uh, comes in. Now, what are we supposed to do with this story? Uh, we could hear this story and look at it as a warning about pride, as we did last week with Nebuchadnezzar. But what I actually want to do is I want to take a step back and see what this passage shows us and tells us about kingdoms and God's interaction with kingdoms. You see, God established the kingdom of Israel through David, but the kingdom of Israel would eventually be judged for their sin. King Solomon married many foreign wives who introduced the worship of false idols into the king, and that led the kingdom of Israel to be divided and eventually overtaken by foreign empires. Uh, the prophets would call Israel to repent, but their hearts were, hearts were hardened and they didn't repent. Therefore, God judged them ultimately by giving them to Babylon. Now, under the reign of Belshazzar, Babylon defiled the temple vessels, worshipped idols, and dishonored the God who gave him the throne and the kingdom. God would judge Belshazzar and give the kingdom of Babylon to the Medes, and the Persians ultimately conquered the Medes, but uh, to the Medes and to the Persians. Now, why were the Persians so important? 
you know, it was the Persians, it was under the Persian rule that a decree was made by King Cyrus to allow the exiles to return home to Jerusalem in order to rebuild their temple. And why did the Persians do that? Because King Cyrus made that decree. But why did King Cyrus make that decree? In 2 Chronicles 36, this is what it says. The Lord stirred the spirit of King Cyrus. And so again, everything, if you think about it, everything, including powerful kingdoms, are ruled by God's sovereign hand. And God decided that after a certain number of years in exile, God determined it is time now to bring my people back to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple, so that they can worship again. And the, the larger point is nothing can stop or thwart God's plan. No matter how strong a kingdom is, no matter how strong a political leader is, no one can stop God's plan. Now, what did Daniel know of God's plan for his people? I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the book. But uh, in Daniel 7, Daniel receives a vision during the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. And this vision shows him two things. First, it shows him that the present world is under the sway of evil human power. And second, it shows him that the Ancient of Days will come and be victorious over these evil kingdoms. The Ancient of Days will come and bring judgment for the saints of the Most High, and the saints will receive and possess the kingdom forever. But Daniel didn't know how God would do this. And you could say he experienced it at one level because God did bring judgment to Babylon, uh, Babylon and to Belshazzar. But the saints of the Most High didn't exactly receive and possess the kingdom, let alone possess it forever. So how would that ultimately happen? That happened when God sent Jesus into the world to come and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. When Jesus enters the world, he comes to establish his kingdom through his rule and through his reign. You know, the writing on the wall, so to speak, uh, for the kingdom of this world and the, uh, and, and the ki uh, kingdom of Satan, uh, you know, just as the finger of God wrote that message on the wall, the finger of God will display that very message through Jesus. Uh, it's interesting. There's a place in Luke 11 where uh, Jesus, he's casting out demons and he says something interesting. Uh, first, he talks about how a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And then he says this, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Then he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I don't know if this is supposed to be a reference to Daniel 5 or if Jesus is thinking about that chapter as he says these things, but it is essentially the same point as the one in Daniel 5. What Jesus is saying is God is powerful and he is going to demonstrate complete victory over the kingdom of Satan, over the kingdom of darkness. God will divide Satan's kingdom as he did with Babylon's and it will not stand. God will establish his kingdom by his very own finger, and it will be an eternal kingdom. And the only twist is how that would come to be. Uh, God doesn't establish his kingdom by way of force, by way of violence, by way of a large army. God establishes his kingdom by way of death on a cross. And through death, death was defeated. Death made way for the resurrection of Jesus, and through the victory of the resurrection came ultimate victory for the people of God and the establishing of God's kingdom. And therefore, God's message to the kingdom of this world is what? 
your days are numbered. Now, what does that mean exactly? It means this, hatred and violence, your days are numbered. Plague and pestilence, your days are numbered. Sin and death, your days are numbered. Satan, your days are numbered. And that's actually the uh, vision we see in the book of Revelation. Through the cross, we are invited to enter into the kingdom. And because of Jesus, we will even receive it as his glorious inheritance. We will be possessors of it. And therefore, we can persevere in suffering. We can live in the power of the kingdom as we anticipate the completion or the consummation of his complete victory. And therefore, uh, when we live, uh, if we live um, in this world and we see all the brokenness of this world and this kingdom, and we feel like uh, the things of this world are defeating us, uh, the one thing you should remember is this, the kingdom of God is eternal. In a sense, the kingdom of God is already here. In the kingdom of God, uh, we get to share in the victory, in the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And that's where we find our hope. Let's pray together.